Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Welcome to Fire Engineering's Politics and Tactics. Tonight, I'm here with my co-hosts, Sam Villani and Dave Polikoff, and we got a great show for you tonight. We want to kind of give an update. While we touched on this a couple shows ago, we want to give an update of what's going on from New York to Seattle with firefighters that were forced to retire because of the vaccine mandates and other firefighters who were terminated due to the vaccine mandates. Tonight, we're going to start off with FDNY. Uh, Battalion Chief, Tom, you've been a leader on this issue. I've heard you testify before, you know, the city council or the equivalent of in New York City speaking for your brother and sister firefighters. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself and explain a little bit about what forced you to retire and how New York City has lost all this experience. Then we'll move on to Paul and we'll start a conversation. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Tom Apollar, 38 years. As you know, I was uh, forced to retire. I was fortunate enough. I was blessed. I had the time in, and I had more than enough time to to, to have a uh, a secure pension. But I still call it not a retirement. It's uh, I was fired. I was terminated. Not necessarily the same boat as other folks that didn't have that. And there's still others in that predicament that have yet to be reinstated. So I'm 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 moving off into retirement land, where there's still a handful of members of this department. And unfortunately, have yet to be reinstated from their from their re- forced retirement, from their termination. And uh, what you, we have up in the top corner over there is, is Paul Dwight, who I work with in the battalion. He, he'll he'll give you a little bit better update. He's he's he, he's one of the leaders, the bravest for choice, and I have the utmost respect for the leadership that that group has uh, created over the past two years. They've taken they've done all the heavy lifting in regards to. Uh, making sure that every member of this department that was coerced into forced retirement or terminated gets their jobs back. Um, he'll give you a little bit more of a specific update on all those members and, and, and his own predicament. Paul was uh, a young, 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 watching him grow up as a, as a young probie firefighter and take on this leadership role that I think was pushed upon him that he didn't expect to have so quickly. Um, and he's done a phenomenal job. So I watched him in the 8th Battalion and 7th Truck. Not only a phenomenal firefighter, a phenomenal leader. Um, so he'll give you an update on what's taking place with all these members that are looking to get their jobs back. Me, again, my, my retirement is spending time with my grandchildren, and I've been blessed. But the fight still goes on, and I'm here to support not only Paul and Bravest for Choice over here on the East Coast, but to help my brothers and sisters over on the West Coast in Seattle. This is... A few times I spoke with some of these gentlemen, and I am looking forward to tonight's conversation. Well, Chief, I just want to really commend you for really taking a leadership role, because the fact of the matter is a lot of people were forced to retire. But in New York City, you stepped up to lend a voice to younger members, along with Steve Collins, who stepped up, retired, served his country in the military for the Seattle guys. A lot of people were forced into retirement, and then they just retired, where you continue to take your time away from your family to advocate for the brothers and sisters. So we appreciate that. Paul, 
Welcome to Fire Engineering Politics and Tactics. Um, it's an honor to have you on the show. We know that this wasn't the leadership role you probably wanted. You were probably looking to become a lieutenant and move up the ranks. And here you are leading a fight that wasn't your fight. Can you tell us what Bravest for Choice is, what you're doing? And again, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, thanks for the intro, Chief. I mean, it's, it's truly been an amazing experience. And I say that after going through one hell of a struggle. Um, you're right. I, I really didn't plan on taking this leadership role. I, I was at the point in my career where the lieutenant exam was actually coming upon me. And a lot of people with my time, a lot of guys I got to the firehouse with were focused on uh, furthering their career. Uh, this fight began for me um, the FDMY Memorial Day 2021 is when our mayor came down and said, you know, we're going to force these mandates upon FDMY workers. It was already instituted for healthcare workers and teachers. And, you know, looking back, uh, a part of me feels a little bit of a shame that I didn't jump in earlier. But, you know, it's human nature to really only um, see things for what they are when they truly affect you personally. And um, once it was knocking at my front door, really Bravest for Choice was started kind of just like this. You know, like we sat down, uh, we started a conversation with a couple members that we knew, uh, created an organization um, out of thin air. We had no idea what we we're doing. We we're a bunch of firefighters, you know, we're not equipped to handle the tech and the marketing and uh, fundraising and the things that we did throughout this journey. but. You know, in the fire service and first responders in general, we we make things happen. You know, all the gentlemen here, I'm sure, could stand behind that that fact that we do more with less. And no matter the the call, the the rescue, the fire, whatever it is, we get the job done. And um, those individuals that stepped up early on to create Bravest for Choice said, uh, you know, we got to take a stand. And um, you know. We didn't know the impact it would have until a couple, you know, like a year and a half later. Um, our first real show that this was something important to so many people was launching that march over the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and once again, that was a conversation that we had like this. We planned it three days in advance and we didn't know if we were going to have 50 people show up or 150 people show up. Turned out a oh, uh, about 20,000 people in New York City that were city workers cared so much to take part in that march. And um, all that fear that is bottled up inside of you when you try and launch something like that, you kind of have to let that stuff go, realize that we're all good people, we're all going out with a good intent, and we chose um, the organization's name Bravest for Choice because that's all we wanted in the beginning was just choice. We weren't trying to make a grandiose statement that um, we're scientists and this is what's going into the vaccine. And, you know, some of us took it for um, religious, uh, didn't take it for religious reasons. Some of us didn't take it for, um, you know, because our values, you know, didn't warrant it, you know, it was a personal choice. And, um, you know, that's what we were fighting for everybody and it turned out that we weren't even fighting for ourselves we were fighting for all city employees in new york city sanitation police uh the police department the teachers you you know everybody came out that was affected by this and we were able to start really 
branching out. Um, so that's kind of how we got started. Um, and to get on a personal note, I'm sure some of the members here can relate. This was never about me. You know, I was, uh, my background, uh, I'm a United States Marine. And, um, you know, from the time I'm 17, the core values of, you know, doing the hard thing is the right thing has always been instilled in me. So, um, you know, I knew that I had to do something. And uh, sometimes the roles that uh, are needed are right in front of you and you have to take them. Um, that's what we do as in the fire service. You know, if uh, you see a, a, a building that needs a portable ladder and nobody's doing it, you do it, you know? Um, we just take on those roles that need to be done. And I was very fortunate to have people throughout the entire FDNY from, from multiple ranks up to uh, Chief Lapola really was the really only senior leader that I saw to step out, to take a huge stand, you know, because you don't have to at that point in your career. You got 38 years. I, w I worked under uh, Chief Lapola, like he was saying in the 8th Battalion, 38 years in the fire service, you could have done whatever you wanted. You could have rolled, rolled out your retirement, you know, and, and, and aged out when, when uh, probably like he intended on doing. And instead he felt the conviction to do what we were all doing and to just, just stand, you know, we, in the face of overwhelming tyranny, that's how we saw it, you know? Um, but at least it was his choice. You know, he, he was able to make that choice um, and have that experience behind him. But we had people with that were probies on this job that were affected from these mandates all the way up to chief. So this really affected everybody. It was a personal matter to me that fighters for the first time, I think in history, were being laid off for not doing anything wrong, for standing by their convictions. So, you know, that's a fight from to me that's worth fighting for. Um, and if I, if you have to reel me in, for those of you who don't know me, I'll get going and I won't stop. So, um, don't worry. I talk to Steve Collins a lot. You guys are both peas in the pods. It must, must be your military <laughs> service. And, uh, I, I appreciate, I appreciate both of your military service. Steve was a hell of a You haven't met Davey yet. For the army. Um, how many, and, that, and if you don't know the numbers, it's okay. Cause I've been trying to dive into this and figure it out. And a lot of people that I talk from New York to New York City, they don't even know how many people were initially let go, not forced into retirement, that were actually let go, and how many have come back to work? Yeah, so the, this has been one of the most difficult things to, to track throughout this whole process because we have, you know, the fire department in New York City is, is the largest in the country. And, um, you know, we're spread over multiple boroughs, so it's hard to get that communication. But what's so crazy is those individuals that should have been tracking this, such as the department and the unions, um, I don't even think they had those numbers. But what we estimate from the start of the mandates was 40% of the department uh, were against the, the vaccine mandates. And initially, um, you know, that probably dwindled down to around 35% that um, took a stand and either chose to go leave without pay or, um, you know, they basically we were told to show up and be told to go home. And that was about 35 
percent of the um, department. Um, so probably roughly around 3,500 uh, firefighters. So the, the modern day, the modern day philosopher, um, John Mayer said that if you've been, you can, what you can, you can, what's it, if you can control the information, you can bend it all you want. And that's really what we see here is that there has been no transparency to allow for public scrutiny at the FDNY or across the country. They controlled the information about the vaccine mandate. And when they told us all, it was going to prevent us from transmitting it to other individuals. And now they're controlling how many people it affects. Uh, Chief, how many, do you know how many people retired due to the vaccine mandate and how many years of experience the New York City Fire Department lost because of forced retirements? I'm sorry, I muted it. Um, I don't know the exact number, Frank, but when I did go, I had reached out to a few chiefs. I, I wanted to go meet with senior leadership to, 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 to let them know my concerns that nobody was speaking up. So I reached out to a few deputies and battalion chiefs that were, were kind of retired earlier than they had expected. Nobody really wanted to, I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but a handful of them just moved out of state and they, they, they left. The exact numbers, I'm not even sure, but we did lose senior men, uh, company offices, chief offices, right down to Kobe, as Paul suggested. And, 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 and Paul suggested 40% of, of the department was probably coerced, meaning Mayor Adams suggested to everybody that the city workforce is 98% vaccinated. Yeah, well, half of that was 98%, 40 to 50% were coerced. I have a relative of mine who's in the healthcare profession, and when she, she was forced to take the shot as well, and she described it as medical rape. So yeah, it, it was it was coercion at, at, at the least, and 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 forcing you either were coerced, took this shot, and, were, and I don't want to even use that term again, or you, the city just lost senior leadership, and and leadership not necessarily only in the chief rank. You lost a lot of senior men. I, I'm, I'm picturing one guy in the company that I worked very close with, one of the most senior guys, one of the a, a phenomenal firefighter, and he and he just left the department. And, and that's just one of many. That's anecdotal. I don't know. I can't track like Paul suggests. New York City comes So it's a difficult um, thing to track. But we did lose a lot of senior, experienced firefighters, senior men, company and chief officers. Yeah, and no, I think it's important to recognize everybody that's on this call, their political courage. Because while some people had to take the vaccine because they were sacrificing for their families or thought it was the best thing for them, some people believed in it. That's fine. But other people, you know, risk their careers. And it, it's always amazed me that people would risk their lives, but won't e dare to even think about risking their career. So there's a different type of political courage that occurs when you're putting it all on the line. What's really surprising to me, especially as a past union president, is that the union really cowered on this entire issue. Now, New York City's union did a better job than Seattle's union. But the IFF in general, they just basically took individuals that suffered the equivalent of the death penalty for a labor case, and they just completely abandoned dues-paying members. Um, and I've said this before, I was no fan of Harold Shakespeare, but when Harold Shakespeare wasn't getting what he wanted from the politicians, he stopped all PAC funding and all endorsements to bring things back in line. The IFF in this case, they just made speeches 
and ran for dinner service and car service. And they didn't stop PAC funding. They didn't stop donations of political figures. They put no public policy pressure to back up the firefighters. And I think one of the reasons for that is, and I'm just speculating here, is that, and I came out against this from the very beginning, the IFF worked real hard to have firefighters jump the line when it came to vaccinations. And I think when they, re- they did that based off that faulty premise that it stopped transmission, and then when they realized that it didn't and that their decision was actually hurting the very people we're sworn to protect of jumping over grandma and little kids, um, I think they felt that their ego and emotion to their position, and they just couldn't get around it and have the courage to admit they were wrong and reverse course. But people paid dues. Now, Steve Collins is in the same position as the chief. He was forced to retire, military veteran, a helicopter pilot, and yet he decided to take this on. And Seattle's done something great. They have, it's 38 members, Steve? Yeah, there's there's currently 38 members, hopefully soon to be 39, because we found another guy that had uh, fallen through the cracks. Um, okay, so but members that lost their job, but they have 38 members, possibly 39, that just signed on to a federal lawsuit that was just filed. I just took the time digesting the complaint. It's over 100 pages long. I think it's 110 pages long. We're going to have fire engineering post it. But what I really like what your attorney did is they wrote it, I think, with the eye of trying to survive summary judgment. So it literally lays out all of the policy positions, the adverse at, uh, impact on members. It goes into, it really is just a real cogent look from A to Z on what's going on. So Steve, do you want to kind of break down the lawsuit for us and then we'll go to your guys? Uh, sure. Well, uh, just to be accurate for the facts, uh, the facts are that there's 110 pages of lawsuit that's filed in federal court um, we're going through uh, disclosures now and uh, because we have to provide those for the attorneys. But there's, it's 110 pages of foot noted. It, there's, there's, the details are there already in the lawsuit, and I really do appreciate it if you would, uh, you would put, like you said, if you would post that for America to see. Yeah, the, the one thing that, that like really stuck out at me is that Unlike New York, and if if information comes to light that's different in New York, I'd love to hear it, but most fire departments who initiated this policy of vaccine mandates were trying to narrowly tailor it, and it was based off the faulty premise that it didn't spread transmission. But in the Seattle case, going through the lawsuit, it makes it quite clear that when Seattle put forth this draconian policy, they already knew that stop transmitting something that really uh kind of just spoke right out to me can you elaborate on that uh yeah this was you know there's a lot of sayings and and colloquialisms that people say a lot that that sound a little cliche but in seattle this had nothing to do with safety it had everything to do with compliance now uh there there's a there's a uh, uh, there's something called a louder mill hearing when we have our hearings. Uh, basically, it's a labor board and uh, 
and uh, the the chief suppose is supposed to listen to what you're saying and your defense as to why you shouldn't get fired. There's all sorts of it was it was firefighters that provided the vaccine for the public. We would not me personally, but but firefighters would give the injections and therefore they would give out the vaccine cards. It, there was massive amounts of ability to get fake or actually accurate vaccine cards or, you know, real vaccine cards, but people that didn't get the shot. And there's a substantial portion of the Seattle Fire Department that ex- that took that. And what they did was they just presented that vaccine card to the chief. One of our members, it's 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 all written. It's all signed. It's a, it's in evidence where he brought this to the chief's department the chief Harold Scoggins it brought it to his attention that there's a lot of these people who have these fake cards that didn't actually get the vaccine. And he said, that's, it's not my business to go investigating these things. So he accepted that it, that all it was, it was just about very simply about compliance. It had nothing to do with health and safety. So Harold Scoggins, the chief of the Seattle fire department, correct? That's right. Harold Scoggins. Okay, and he was aided and abetted by the union and the politicians in Seattle? Uh, the Seattle Fire Department Union was fully on board with the mandate. Okay, the membership was not on board with the mandate, but the fire department itself was on board, or the union itself was on board with the mandate. <clears throat> and uh, um, there's a real lot of, I don't know if you can hear that. But, hey guys, um, everybody mute so, if you're not talking, just so we can get back on some of the feedback. I think Dave is probably eating a Snickers. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm so just Kenny, listening. Kenny, <laughs> yeah, Kenny Stewart is the uh, Seattle Fire Department Local 27 Union President. And he was fully on board with the mandate. But but the one thing that they did was they took a poll for of the membership. And the, and the membership was 70% against them. And yet the um, the union just failed. And I'll go you one better. Uh, the I think it was, I think Ricky Walsh uh, negotiated with the with the uh, governor of the state of Washington, and went out and made it so that he clarified the position of the state of Washington that if they got a religious exemption and an accommodation, could they still act as a firefighter on the rigs? And that was, in fact, what they agreed on. That yeah, if they got a religious exemption and an accommodation, that they could still act as firefighters, go on calls, medical calls, go in people's houses, all of that stuff. Well, Kenny Stewart hid that from the membership. Okay, that's a claim that I want to back up. If Kenny Stewart doesn't like me using his name, let's go on this show and debate it. Kenny Stewart hid it from our membership, did not let them see it. It wasn't until FOIA and uh, and public disclosure requests that came out that we were able to locate this. So Kenny Stewart was running around telling all the people in the Seattle Fire Department that, well, you're not going to be able to act as a fireman because you haven't got the vaccine. Because all the while, he knew that that was not true. So... So the, the, the Kenny Stewart and the union basically lied and hid information from the membership of the Seattle Fire Department. And okay, even Steve, today, Steve, right? Before I listen, yes, sir. You, mentioned, you mentioned somebody's name. You said Walsh. He's one of the IFF's 
district vice presidents, correct? He's our he's our leader. He's our president out here in the Northwest. I think he's Washington State, Oregon, Alaska. I I believe that's the case. I follow him on Facebook. He always talks about, you know, people that we don't forget our brothers, except unless they decided not to take a vaccine. Well, I think that's one of the problems is that, you know, and it's sad to say, but the public has moved on. Most people forgot about their mandate already. And yet we have all these firefighters and nurses, some teachers that are still out of work. When the mandate's over, they didn't even bring them back. Um, I want to introduce a couple of your guys and kind of hear their personal story and what they're dealing with here. So let's go to Ian first. Um, Ian, you were you were a rescue guy in Seattle. Did I got that right? That's right. Yeah, I was uh, with Seattle for five years. And my last two years with the department, I worked on uh, Rescue One, their tech rescue team for Seattle. And are you, if you don't mind me asking, are you living in Seattle now? I am not. I, after getting fired from the department, I moved my family to Tennessee. Okay, so here's a guy that's highly trained on a rescue, heavy rescue in Seattle Fire. A lot of certification, building up that experience, and here, experience that the taxpayers paid for. And now, instead of serving the citizens of Seattle, and you came to work before the mandate, correct? So you were coming to work before the mandate, and now you're with your family in Tennessee. Go on, tell me a little bit more about uh, your personal story. Yeah, so a little different than Steve. Um, I did not have the option to retire early, so I went ahead and uh, I filed for my religious exemption, which was approved. But it's kind of that two-part process. They needed to provide or find an accommodation for me. They claimed we were going to have in, in-depth, interactive, personal meetings. They didn't do that at all. We got a, I got a letter on, I believe it was October 13th, saying that we've already reviewed everything and not going to offer any type of accommodation. But if you have any suggestions, why don't you go ahead and email your specific department HR person with any thoughts? So I offered everything from testing, continuing to mask, really continuing my, my practices I'd already been doing. It's had been almost two years of COVID. I hadn't contracted it yet. And, um, you know, and even brought up the fiscal part of the, the amount of money they've invested into me for all my training and, and years in the department and uh, basically got the blanket denial of anything that I could come up with. And then when my wife and I kind of saw the writing on the wall, we didn't know how bad COVID restrictions were going to be. You couldn't go into a lot of restaurants without a vaccine card. So we thought for the betterment of our family and our beliefs that we should leave and move out of the state. I attended a lateral mill hearing in my car as I was driving on my way to Tennessee. I tried to get it changed and they said, they basically gave me a date and said, you can show up or not. I said, well, I'll show up in my car, I guess. And from there, they they fired me. I had the chief admit, Harold Scoggins, that I had done nothing wrong and this wasn't disciplinary and that I was acting upon my religious exemption. They hung low fruit to us because they wanted us to resign. Part of that resignation paperwork is the fact that you had to sign a statement saying this was under my own choice and I was not coerced to leave the department. Well, with my integrity and and the fact that I didn't want to leave, I couldn't sign that. And I think, honestly, it was more of a legal protection for the city and uh, may have been a hurdle through what we're doing now through a a lawsuit against the city in federal court. And so from there, um, I was officially terminated two days after that lateral mill hearing. And um, another thing in that lateral mill hearing they admitted is the union and the city said they had not formally came to any type of ask or discussion about adding 
religious exempt or those fired due to religious beliefs to the civil service rules for being able to maybe come back should the mandate be dropped. So you can do so if you're separated from medical or um, disability reasons or if you have resigned or retired. But despite not having any disciplinary reasons for leaving, uh, I don't qualify for asking to come back. So I moved to Tennessee. I've been worked for a record company doing heavy um, recovery and towing as well as light duty, you know, um, uprighting over tractor trailers. And now I'm going into some some pilot training to to pursue a, a pilot career. So that's kind of the update in my life. And, um, you know, and we talk about the toll it's taken on individuals uh, for myself about a year ago was about, you know, in, in October was about a year from when I was fired. Uh, I tried really hard to, you know, work my career to where like being a firefighter wasn't my identity. Uh, however, um, the ending of my career, I would say the destruction of it led to some pretty depressive and dark times about a year ago. So I had to seek out counseling, you know, my family and, and wife and kind of our struggles through going with a plan B. We never thought we had to um, experience um, has really has taken its toll. But I think with our faith and my wife and I, at least, you know, we weren't battling each other over our stance. So it was to have her support through everything we did. But um, yeah, it's taken a big toll on a lot of people. And I think, you know, a lot of cities have tried to make things right. In the case of Seattle, they've done everything to double down and not see the light. So your louder, louder mill hearing, you're saying they essentially didn't treat you like an individual, that it was a kangaroo court and the cake was already baked and they really, yeah, really was, did what you had you to know, play. I could even tell in the chief's, chief's demeanor, he didn't really want to be there. It was kind of like, you know, I had some things to say. I wanted them to admit I'd done nothing wrong and discuss with a union member, at, you know, in attendance to, you know, I, I asked if they would promise to have that discussion to have us added to those civil ser service rules. But the writing was on the wall. I mean, nothing was going to change. And how hey, long? Hey, go ahead, Steve. Uh, Fifteen minutes after our louder mills, we, re we received the email saying that we had three days and we were fired. So were all the emails the same amongst all the people other than the, just changing the name? Yeah. So it was yeah. a cut and paste. So it was a kangaroo court. The, the cake was already baked. It was already over. The paperwork was done. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Now, were you willing to accommodate the city in any way, like with week, weekly testing or wearing a mask? if that would keep your job, Ian? Yeah, that was part of my, when I was emailing the HR director for Seattle Fire, Andrew Liu, um, I had basically listed out that I'd be willing to test daily or weekly, continue to wear N95 masks. They brought up the fact that the unvaccinated were spreading COVID at higher rates, which their own tracked numbers contradicted. It was actually a, a par for par. You know, we had, like Steve had said, we... 70% was against the mandate and 30% was not yet vaccinated as of August. Obviously, that changed with people having to make kind of drastic decisions. However, the COVID numbers for those who are contracting COVID month by month, um, as far as July and August, they were roughly about 70 to 80% of the COVID cases for people going out were vaccinated. And the department knew this. So this was part of knowing everything ahead of time, but yet not changing policy and you know, like many things with that season and, and even still, you know, I, 
there's a saying that says, I cannot believe the lie despite objective reality. And that is the polar opposite of what Seattle chose to do. Now, Steve, I saw in the in the complaint for the federal lawsuit that they initially and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. They initially said that the cost would be too high to do testing and masking and they wouldn't they wouldn't accept that narrowly tailored kind of uh, common sense public policy at the time. And then they fired everybody and then they went back to it. And that's what they've ended up doing even after people were fired. Can you shed some light on that? Because I thought that was very telling. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty accurate. Um, there's a uh, anybody's interested, they can go look this up. There's a term in the law called de minimis cost, and they put that in everybody's form letter. That basically, what you know, we said, well, hey, we'll we'll test, we'll mask, we'll social distance, we'll do whatever. One guy went so far as to say he would buy, purchase a camper and live in the camper away from all of the other members except for runs. Okay, so we we were willing to do extreme measures in order to keep our jobs. And they said that it was more than a de minimis cost. And what that actually says, what that actually means is more than a trifle. There was a court case called Groff versus DeJoy that was adjudicated about a month ago. I don't want to go into the weeds on all of that. Um, But the bottom line is, is that the city of Seattle said it was more than a trifle basically more than pennies to, to, for them to accommodate us. Therefore, they didn't have to. And then in October, there was, I believe there was 11 people that got sick with COVID. 11 people out of, out of 1,000, they got sick with COVID. And then in December, of course, we all left and nobody worked after the 18th of October. In December, I think the number was 172. Vaccinated people contracted COVID. So 11 with unvaccinated, 172 with vaccinated people. So it, we, and then what they did at, at that point was they said, okay, all of you active people that currently have, have been, you know, fully vaccinated recently are contracting COVID. So now we want you all to mask, test, and social distance. So then they went out there and they um, and they paid for all of the costs for masking, social distancing for people, for people who are, you know, already vaccinated. That's, so that, that's the details of what you ask. Public policy starts to shift, but they and, still- And I think it's really important to understand for your viewers to understand that that these these people were zealots okay the the people that work for the city of seattle very much were zealots and there was no way that anybody who was not vaccinated was ever going to continue working for the city of seattle we have a we have a chief uh, i won't say his name he's a really good guy he uh, um but they their original intention was for them, they were going to deny people's accommodations. We have affidavits for all of this. So they were going to deny their accommodations. Well, he happens to be a Catholic guy. And he said, well, they said, well, we don't have to worry about the Catholics because the Pope came out and said that uh, they, he wasn't against the vaccination. 
And he asked the question, he said, well, was that ex cathedra? I am not Catholic, so I don't necessarily understand this. But he explained it to these people and they immediately pivoted to saying, okay, well, we won't deny their their religious exemption, we'll deny their accommodations. And if you look across the city of Seattle, they didn't grant, they granted very, very, very few religious accommodations. There's a difference between an exemption and accommodation. They gave everybody an exemption, but they didn't let anybody keep their jobs because it was more than a de minimis cost. The one guy they let keep their job was an IT guy who, guess what? He knows where the bodies are buried. And if he starts talking, they're all going to swing. So, okay, I want to so, I, I want to go to your other guy, uh, Davey, to kind of bring in another point. And I, I'm not sure if this pertains to you, but something else that I read was that in the complaint, it's outlined that several members already contracted COVID and were willing to prove their antibodies and provide that medical information to the city to keep their job. I know about Steve. Are you one of those guys as well, Davey? Yeah, I, I provided uh, proof of COVID, uh, COVID positive test, and I would have been happy to submit to an antibody test. Um, one of the challenges is that they, it throughout none of this, um, having a history of COVID or, or recovering from it, um, a, a positive COVID test was not recognized as, as valid. Uh, the natural antibodies that, that our bodies generate um, was not considered uh, good enough. So it didn't, it didn't matter what your history was, whether you were like Ian that, that hadn't gotten it yet or whether you were like me that had um, or Steve, um, you, they st you still had to take a shot. How could that be? They told, they told us to follow the science. That's what they said, but you follow the science and you find the money. That is, that is true. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story? Sure. I was uh, hired by Seattle Fire Department after three years of testing uh, in uh, January of 2000. Um, at the time of my firing, I was the senior driver of Ladder Company 5 uh, in Northgate, uh, which is the north end of the city of Seattle. Seattle city of Seattle is long and skinny um, because of the water on each side. So we had uh, the largest square mile district in the city. Um, and we were one of the busiest trucks in the city. Uh, when we would go out of service for uh, training or something like that, if our truck broke down, Steve's truck would actually be moved up into our district to cover all to cover our area. So he knows our district pretty well. Um, as part of my duties, I was uh, a tiller instructor. I actually taught Ian how to uh, his entry, his beginning stages of. Uh, how to drive a tractor drawn aerial, uh, a tiller rig. And, you know, I'm incredibly proud of the crew that I put together over, you know, being on that truck company for almost 20 years. Um, I didn't come in on a truck. Uh, I, it took me a couple years to get up there, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was what I did. Well, I think we can all agree. It's the driver that makes or breaks any officer. Uh, Chief, you want to weigh in on that? You, you're muted. He's, he's muted. <laughs> with, without a doubt. That there, and the relationship that you develop with that, that chauffeur, your, whether it's your engine company chauffeur, your ladder chauffeur, or even your aide, you develop a great relationship. And, and the trust that you give to them is uh, 
mm-hmm. is, is you, you're giving them your life and they and they they run the show and they are my brother was a senior man in his company he'll get a kick that i mentioned him on this show but uh he was a phenomenal asset to the fire department he left before all this uh but i knew he took his job as seriously as um from dave right yeah he took his job as seriously as, as i did and the funny thing right. is just a quick story me and my brother were both sons of a New York City fireman. And, and even though I was a chief officer and he was a senior man in his company, we still talked about the fire department. And 96, 97% of the on things fire department, we agreed on. One, one or 2% of the things we had slight disagreements on and 1% of the things we disagreed on very loudly. But for the most part, it was a, uh, a great relationship. Right. And the senior man and the senior chauffeur, key role in the fire service, no doubt. Oh. Yeah, so Davy. Big responsibility. Yeah, Davy. Uh, Davy is a very good tiller operator, and uh, was easily the second best tiller operator in the city of Seattle. <laughs> I might give you a run for your money because I'm dyslexic, so driving the back just came natural to me. Just so you know, when you're driving behind me, you don't have to turn your wheel. <laughs> the driver makes or breaks the tillerman too, without a without a doubt, without a doubt. So, I remember one day. It, New, we're at the New Haven Training Academy. We had a Seagrave tiller, and the officer said, I always wanted a tiller. I want a tiller back. And everybody's like, no. And he's like, no, we're going to tiller back. He ran right over the hood of a car. So, <laughs> Should have just, just put the pin in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ran yep. right over. Oh, Paul, you know, you're hearing what's going on in Seattle here. Are there any lawsuits coming out of New York for these remaining uh, individuals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's actually pretty amazing hearing these gentlemen speak because we experienced across, I think, the entire country in the fire service, the same procedures of how they went about systematically tearing us down. Um, Lack of information, lack of leadership. um, You know, everybody was kind of left to the wings to figure out it on on their own. And a lot of the unions didn't really step up to fill that role. Ours, um, you know, digs uh, a little bit better of a job than most others. But, um, you know, we went through the same process of saying, we'll actually, we actually launched uh, a, a, uh, a COVID uh, antibody testing site. So we had a mo- we, we did a partnership with a mobile antibody uh, testing and we had members show up to prove their antibodies. That wasn't good enough. Then we uh, followed the science and went onto the FDA's website and the CDC and said, okay, well, you shouldn't get the shot if you're allergic to these ingredients in the shot. We had all of our members that were still out go and get um, allergy tests um, for those two ingredients that turned out 80% of us were allergic to. Um, and that was probably one of the initial reactions that people were getting of adverse effects. Um, and that's how... Uh, about uh, a little over a dozen of us got back, myself included, after 11 months of leave without pay. You know, I was able to uh, get back on a medical exemption, um, but that took about three months to get approved. And the only reason that got approved was because we got the backing of city council and city council was hammering the um, the city and the fire department saying, these guys, uh, these members have proof of why they can't take the shot. Why can't they be allowed back? Um, so, I mean, hearing these gentlemen is like 
you know, you, we were never, you guys were definitely never alone, uh, you know, throughout this fight. We were experiencing the same exact thing in New York, and we partnered with uh, members from Florida and members from California. Every single thing we saw was the same systematic approach to breaking down the fire service. And early on, we had firehouses that were closed in New York City. I mean, the thought of that today or any other year is is devastating, right? Because it's one of the busiest departments. And throughout that time period, we actually were talking to the news saying our biggest fear is that these fire departments, these fire uh, houses are going to be closed and somebody is going to lose their life. And it takes that loss of life for people to wake up and say, okay, we need to fix what's going on here. But they, um, what we've seen is the city of New York continuously tries to put the burden on us saying, um, you know, we're, we're honorable men and women. You know, we want to fulfill our oath that we took to protect life and property to, you know, not fulfill that obligation is, is very uh, daunting to, to most people to walk away from, to leave somebody in harm's way when you could be doing something to assist. And during that time period where firehouses were closed and the mayor at the time said that they weren't, we have documented uh, 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 probably around 25 to 30 firehouses that were closed during that time period. But because there was phones were operational, then the firehouse was open. Um, Uh, Davey, the same thing happened in Seattle with brownouts as well, correct? Yes, we had brownouts. Um, we got a quite a, a pretty good list of how many brownouts that we had. Um, the uh, now, the city of Seattle is approximately, when fully staffed, is got about a thousand uniformed members who are a lot, lot smaller than FDNY. Um, but they were having uh, units six, seven, eight units a day browned out in yeah. in yeah. certain on certain days. Um, so this put the public at risk. Oh, very much so. Not just the public at risk. They're putting the rest of the firefighters at risk. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, when, when your your tactics have to change when when your second due or third due is is now minute, that many minutes farther away. So, you know, not only that, you talked earlier about how much wisdom and experience got shoved out the door. We had a couple of creative cats, you know, in one of the fire stations that put together a list of uh, it was – it wasn't super hyper accurate, but it was it was a pretty good list of how many people got pushed out the door with this, whether they resigned, retired, walked, got fired. You know, a number of them just walked away and said, I'm done. And, and that was it. But it was because of, of the mandate and the amount of experience that was lost added up to, I believe, the T-shirt says 1531 years of experience in in a in a department that's got you know, 950 members and you lose 1,500. I, I, I have the t-shirt in my closet. I can, I can hold it up for you if you want, but I, I mean, um, now there's a handful, I think there's about 70 names on that list. And I know that a few of them ended up, um, changing their mind, taking the shot and then, and then returning to, to the work, um, returning to the job. But, Still, it's insane. I mean, let me let me interject something, Frank. Yeah, so yeah. everybody everybody's having a conversation about what happened during COVID. 
in the city of Seattle, they are still browning, browning out vehicle, uh, uh, vehicle uh, apparatus or, or closing stations for uh, on a daily basis. We have these uh, ebbs and flows like this last weekend was Seafair. They don't have enough people who are willing to work for $80 an hour overtime. They do not, they cannot staff those vehicles today. Not, not during COVID today. Steve, that brings me to another question. Something else that I saw in your complaint that stuck out is that fire, a lot of firefighters that left, including members of your suit, where they weren't good enough to work in Seattle anymore because they were unclean or whatever. They just went over the line and now they're serving the public in other districts. Can you speak to that? I, I absolutely can. There's a there's a there's a uh, guy that I'm sure he wouldn't care if I said his name, but he hasn't given me permission, so I won't. But he w- he was on my crew, and he uh, he was terminated. Not he didn't retire. He was fired. So uh, he got hired for the Boeing Fire Department as the captain of training, and the Boeing Fire Department uh, has a mutual aid gre- agreement with the city of Seattle. If we have a fire in South Seattle, then they'll drive their fire fire apparatus into the city those they did not have a mandate and eric got hired there and today if he gets a fire and if there's a fire in south seattle he could respond on a rig unvaccinated into the city of seattle now the public's yeah the public safety civil service rules is something that we should we should address because that's germane to this this topic um ian is one of those people um, where they were terminated and they requested their jobs back. There was a couple of other folks and they said there was a term. Um, and if I get it wrong, please somebody correct me, but they, they called it non-disciplinary separation. They said, don't worry about it. We're, you're does that even exist? Well, on paper it does in actuality, it doesn't because we all said, well, non-disciplinary separation. I mean, we're still not getting a paycheck, right? Well, they said, yeah, but later on, you know, when things change, maybe you can come back. So, so they cha- They su- supposedly changed the rules to allow us the ability to come back. But in reality, they don't want any of us back because the Public Safety Civil Service Commission is in collusion with the administration, whether it's the fire chief or the police chief or the mayor's office or whatever, those people talk to them very regularly. And the, and the chief of the fire department doesn't want us non-rule followers back. Now, I retired and I, re- I, I requested my job back. They changed the rules so that anybody who had retired in the last five years could apply for reinstatement unless you didn't take the shot. Because I applied for my job back, and they said no, thank you. Can I can I chime in here real quick? Um, Please do. The, when I uh, regarding that term, Steve has it absolutely perfect. The non disciplinary separation. Um, I did a freedom of information request for to the Public Safety Civil Service Council, asking for um, any and all internal and external communication and meeting minutes from the date like six months before COVID even started up until after we got fired. And at no point in any of the documents that they have sent me is the term non-disciplinary separation mentioned. Nowhere. 
it's an arbitrary thing to set to fix their agenda. The, one of the Correct. disturbing things is we know that this wasn't about the science or maybe political science, but it wasn't about true science, but it wasn't also a completely partisan issue. And I say that because of this, and I, I want our listeners to really understand this. Not every city in America took this action. And I worked in Connecticut. You know, I worked in New Haven. New Haven, Connecticut is about as blue as blue can be. And not one firefighter was fired in the state of Connecticut. There were no vaccine mandates for firefighters. There was testing mandates. But once there was talk of mandates to the Connecticut's politicians' credit, the Democrats and the Republicans, once they figured out that, wait a second, everybody's spreading it, everybody's getting it, regardless of vaccine status, the talk of mandates went right away and they started to go with just the testing. So it's not just the red and blue issue, because another example is Houston, Texas, is a very blue city in a red state, but the Democratic mayor and to the fire chief's credit, the fire chief himself stood up and actually spoke up for their members. They did testing. They didn't fire people because of the mandate. So we need to, you know, a lot of times it's easy. And, and I heard, Steve, I heard you say, you know, zealots. Generally, what we find is not everybody's zealots. It's only like a third that infects everybody else because everybody else is just afraid to stand up and say, this makes no sense. And we need to get those people. And that's why I appreciate, Steve, you so much and Chief so much here because you guys could have retired and could have just went away. And instead, you're giving a voice to everybody else you see. Because, I mean, we're on this show tonight with uh, Sam and I. Dave had a pop-off because his inter internet connection was bad. It was because of Steve and Tom, you know, keep pushing this issue. And we need to keep this issue alive. Um, Chief, go ahead. Yeah, Frank, and I and I've got to finish up when I get to my end comments. But I I, I appreciate that. But the reason I do that, it's, not, it's again, it's, this isn't about me. I'm listening to the testimony of these men here, and not only here. I like Paul suggested, told you before, we, we've been speaking with men in Florida, and there's a group in in Australia. This is what drives me. This is what keeps pushing me. Again, this has nothing to do with me. This is about freedom. This is about these men here. This testimony, I, I, don't, I was getting moved by everyone's testimony here. And that's why I do what I do. It's nothing to do with me. Again, it's these men on this panel, the men, I, the men and women I've spoken with in Florida, and, and I participated in some of these, these groups with, with men and women from Australia. And I know Paul has as well. And, and this is what motivates me. It's, it's called what John Devaney, God rest his soul, told me many years ago. Uh, lost, lost his life in line of duty, February 3rd, 1989. His favorite line to me was, do the right thing. And that's all I'm trying to do. And I appreciate this, this opportunity as, as always, Frank, too. Well, Chief, what you're talking about is is what actual leadership is. And I want to thank you for what you're doing for, for, for everybody. That's leadership. Lead, a real leader is accountable first to the people they're leading before they're accountable to the people they report to. That's leadership. That, that bookcase behind me is full of leadership books. I think that might have been the, the big difference between those different cities. You know, that, that yeah. in my eyes was the pivotal thing was the leadership. You know, when you have Houston and Connecticut, I'm sure there was that 
one leader that was in a position of authority to step up and stand up for their membership. And we always had a saying in the, in, in the Marines, it was the mission, the men, and then me. And uh, that's, that's something that I think has been lost for um, throughout this pandemic. It's, it's crazy. You know, we, we reached out to uh, senior leaders to try and have their backing. We reached out to union members with years and years of experience to have our backing. And time after time, you you have this um, reflective answer of, oh, well, everybody has to do what's best for them and their family. I'm, I totally get that. I understand. But at what point as, uh, I don't want to, you know, single men out, but men, I think, have a moral obligation to do the hard thing, right? Um, at what point is your your manhood tested to say, okay, where's my line? You know, and and not only my line, but my line for those I love, my line for those that are my peers and those that I protect, all these different aspects um, that we forget to teach in the fire service, I think, of about leadership. It's, it's just thrusted upon people and um, you either rise to the challenge or you don't. But, you know, that was a, a missing link, I think, for, you know, for somebody that at the time I let's see, I, I, I'm on the fire service now eight years. And so I was, I'm still a junior firefighter in, in so many ways. Um, but to not have the overwhelming majority of leaders in the FDNY, the greatest fire department in the, in the world that we all speak about. And I had, I was very lucky because I worked with chief Lapola, So I had that connection to somebody that said, you know, I care. I'm, I'm watching over you, Paul. I'm here to guide you and help you in any way I can. Like that was, I didn't have that from anybody else. You know, a couple of chiefs would reach out here and there, but nothing to the extent that uh, Chief Lapola stepped up to fill that role. If, if we had that in every single organization and every single uh, fire department across the country, I think we'd be sitting in a much better spot, you know, and we wouldn't have had to spend We've, we've raised a hundred thousand dollars in just under a year to fund all of our lawsuits. We would have never had to do any of that if we just kind of band together in the beginning and said, you know, even if you don't agree, we have to look out for our brothers and sisters that feel differently, that have religious uh, observance that they're not going to follow these mandates. Well, this is Paul, this is the thing that really. You know, and I'll say it's my show. It really pissed me off about the unions because here as a union president, I defended people that beat their wives and drove drunk. I don't condone any of those activities. I don't think any union condones those activities. But every union leader in America has to invoke their inner John Adams to protect due process. And when people are getting terminated, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it as a union rep. You have a fiduciary responsibility to represent your members. The other thing is, it's just common labor law. While the yeah. cities could have came in and mandated new hires get the vaccine to get hired, they had to negotiate with the unions in order to mandate incumbents. And the unions caved. You know, the IFF says always on the front line, unless somebody's asking a hard question. You know, I mean, I don't need union leaders to take me out to dinner. I, you know, I got my own credit card for that. And they're doing it with their dues paying members dues. But let's stick up for these people. It doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not. And 
I'd love to see somebody end up suing the union. I mean, I've sued my union and prevailed. The state union, our local union sued the state union and prevailed. So anybody wants to talk to me about that, I would love to talk to him about that. Sam Milani, who's been so quiet tonight, and um, he's on the job currently as a battalion chief. But in Maryland, in the state of Maryland, were there blanket mandates where individuals lost their job or was it by each jurisdiction or how did that work out, Sam? I think it got down to the line with, with a bunch, um, but but I don't think a, an actual mandate came through for anybody. But we did have people that, that left or um, we had a captain that left and came back um, when it was right when the they said, okay, well, you know, you can just get tested. Uh, you have to go test the weekly, report the, report the results, that kind of thing, wear your mask. Um, but I, I tell you, I sit here silent because um, I'm so compelled. Uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the stories here are so compelling and uh, moving. And, and I just, the only question I had was to the chiefs on, on how scary it must have been for them because they didn't have, we don't have union representation. But, uh, hi, Kat. But um, the problem the problem is it doesn't sound like the unions it, it, that it that it would would have made a difference and uh, it's just uh, to to everyone's credit on this on this panel tonight um, it it really speaks to uh, to who we are as firefighters and and uh, and why we signed why we took the oath to do this job and uh, and I I just I'm, I'm blown away I'm, I just can't uh, you know you hear. You, you heard all the stories during COVID, but I, to hear this, to hear first person accounts like this, I think it would have been a tremendous benefit uh, for everybody, uh, certainly the unions, if they heard this stuff. Uh, and it doesn't sound like you guys got an opportunity to uh, to have that to, to have that voice. And uh, for that, I say for shame. On on the contrary, uh, Chief, uh, when when uh, Ed Kelly came to Seattle Fire Department's regular business meeting on November 18 of 2021. It was the day after my Loudermill hearing where my union president, Kenny Stewart, rep was supposedly represented me at my Loudermill. And I stood, I waited, I followed the, the rules of order and I waited for my turn to speak properly. When it was my turn, I raised my hand and I had scraped off every union sticker off of every vehicle I owned and I had wadded it up and I walked up to Ed Kelly and I set him on the counter in front of him. And I said, I'm ashamed to be a part of the IAFF. I'm proud to serve with everybody that was standing behind me. And, and I looked at this guy, he dislocated his shoulder, patting himself on the back for 20 minute for a 20 minute speech before it was time for me to, to be able to stand up and talk. And my local president sold us down the river and all of our international president, Ed Kelly, sold us down the river. And one of the things that that I, I did, I mean, Paul, if, if I can uh, jump in and, on something that, that you said earlier, it, it, my before my last day, I sent out a thank you letter, a goodbye letter. It wasn't really a retirement letter because I wasn't retiring. But, but in that letter, I talked about, um, yeah, we have to stand up as men. Um, and there's not anything I wouldn't do for my very little things I wouldn't do for my family, including going to prison. But but I also have to weigh that that decision about part. I also have a responsibility to my young adult sons to example to them what it looks like to stand up for your beliefs in the face of adversity. Now, 
I was blessed that I had skills and equipment from my previous part of my life, a previous stage of my life, I could return to being a contractor. Um, so we moved to Boise, Idaho, where it's still the land of the free. It's still America. And um, I'm a contractor. Yeah. It's, and, and so I'm a contractor here. Um, but, but not but everybody wanted- Not everybody has those skills. You know, that's the right. one thing. That's the one thing they say about being a Marine. No offense. I thank you for your service. But a lot yes. of people say being a Marine and being a firefighter has one similarity. If that's what you just dedicate yourself to 100 percent, there's not a lot that transitions after right. that unless you have a yeah. trade. And, Paul, I hope you didn't take offense to that. But would you? No, that? Yeah. So I, it was actually very humbling um, to be out of work for 11 months. And uh, especially at the time period that I was. My wife, uh, me and my wife were just uh, recently married. We just recently bought our first house together. My wife was uh, pregnant with our first child. So it was the perfect storm for me to not go to work when all these big events were happening in my life. But I was very fortunate. My wife was working. I was uh, uh, very fortunate to have saved a decent amount of money to be able to go out on that on that road. Um, into that darkness of not knowing what was to come if I was going to lose my job or not. And, you know, I, I developed some skill sets throughout the years. So I always felt comfortable that I could find a job if needed. But the heartbreaking stories, I, th- there are too many to count of individuals that lost everything, not only um, their jobs, but all of their their financial standings that they've built so hard to, to reserve are just gone. People went bankrupt, people were losing houses. And something that was that I do think is important to highlight that we always, you know, wave a flag at when it's convenient is mental health. You know, being a firefighter is a stressful, stressful job as it is. You see things that no no human is, is meant to actually see on a regular basis. And we deal with it. You know, we, we go on these rungs. We have tragic calls. We lose people all the time. And then we go back to the firehouse, regroup, eat a meal and get ready for the next call. You know, it, there, there's no stopping. And that level of uh, grit says a lot about that type of profession. But to sit there and just cast people out like they're nothing. You worked during the height of the pandemic, you got sick, you recovered. And now the city that you work in is saying, you can't work here, you can't eat here, you can't go to a movie theater. What, when in history has that happened? I mean, that's happened before and we forget. And, it's, and a lot of people don't like to call, uh, draw those conclusions of when we had segregation, but that's exactly what it was. We had posted signs saying you cannot enter unless you're vaccinated. You have to show proof. And um, to live through that time period, man, was was incredible. And, and even through all of our marches and when we would go to the courthouse, we had people in the city, the people that we would lay down our lives for, for a complete stranger, spitting in our faces, yelling at us that we're killing grandma. And what's absurd is I think if we would have had true leadership, Somebody should have raised their hand and said, "Okay, if we don't know what's going on with this covid um, virus, why don't we take a a look at the people that are most affected? Right. The people that are on the front lines and how they're responding to it. You can listen to the news outlets all you want. Talking with 
members across the city, we had uh, not enough PPE, not not uh, the right PPE for for what they were saying COVID was, and we were working in close proximity with one other, one another, and we were working back to back shifts. They had to change our group chart to reflect a better uh, manpower, and you know, one life is obviously too much to lose during, uh, you know, any type of event. But we lost one member who was, I believe, offline during COVID. That's, uh, you, we have these individuals going into people's houses with limited PPE, working in close proximity to one another, going to and from home, risking their lives, so to speak. And we had one individual that lost their life. I think it's important to kind of caveat that to saying after the mandate, I believe we had 10 funerals of, of individuals that were coming down with uh, cardiac arrest and, and stroke and, uh, you know, all these things. I, I can't, I'm not, I'm no doctor. I wasn't there for the autopsy. I'm not making these claims that it was due to the vaccine, but I'm a logical guy. We had, we had one of our members break down the deaths over the past 14 years of firefighters, including, you know, in, in, in the line of duty and post mandate, we had the one of the most amount of deaths than any other year prior. And it wasn't because they were uh, dying in the line of duty. They were dying to the sudden death syndrome. And we were kept on raising that concern to people, but people don't want to hear it. The math you know? doesn't lie. It's, it's, it's it, mind blowing to sit here, to be that guy screaming and yelling and trying to wake people up to show that something's happening. I'm, I don't know what, but I'm asking the question and I'm, I'm asking for us to look into it, to sit there and say it has no correlation is bizarre. You don't have to have a high school diploma to understand common common sense, you know, so. That's a, that's a whole nother conversation about the adverse reactions that people have experienced from these shocks and the type of lawsuits that they should be pursuing. We have uh, organized a group of about 40 to 50 individuals with serious adverse reactions to these shocks. Um, I had two members in, in my battalion, sad to say three members that I know personally that were affected from a stroke, a heart attack and death. And once again, I'm not a doctor. I want it to be clear. I'm not some guy to say this is what it was from, but I've never experienced that. I'm sure the chiefs on this call with uh, decades of experience can sit there and say they've never experienced that before. Well, um, in, in America, you're always supposed to be able to ask questions. That's one of the things yes. that made America great. And Ian, in Seattle's lawsuit in the complaint, it outlines a lot of these adverse effects. So you know members in the Seattle Fire Department that suffered stroke and other things that they're looking to see if there was a tie to the vaccine or not? You're muted. Yes, I know somebody who for that very reason, a stroke caused him to have to retire early. It was post-vaccination. Um, we have multiple uh, two cases where people died kind of unexpectedly shortly after the boosters ran out. And again, uh, much like my colleague here, 
I'm not drawing conclusions. I'm not a doctor. I didn't perform any autopsies, but you know, I was in the fire service for 14 years, five of them were with Seattle. And I've got a lot of connections around the greater Puget Sound area. And I personally know four individuals under 45 who unexpectedly, very fit, no history of cardiac issues died of just sudden cardiac events. And so for me, it doesn't really pass the sniff test that I could go 14 years and not have a single year where someone I personally knew had this happen to them. And then four in the matter of 12 months. Yeah. The questions need to be asked. And another thing that Paul brought up that I think is important is that the family sacrificed. I mean, we had Andy Pittman on here talking about that. He has four kids and here he lost his job, but yet he was working. And if I remember correctly, his wife was nervous when he was going to work during the pandemic, as mostly everybody else's in New Haven. My cousin who's a battalion chief there now, you know, he lived out of the house because he was so afraid to bring it home to his kids. Uh, we worked with city leaders, put a little pressure on them and got Yale to give us dorms for members to stay in if they wanted to. And other members were put up in hotels if they contracted it to stay away from people. So the family sacrificed a lot. I'm going to end and go around the horn and give everybody uh, one last chance. But I want to, the last thing that Paul said that, uh, really struck me was where he talked about the community spread that in New Haven, while anecdotal, we didn't see community spread from calls. When we had the first big outbreak at sixes, somebody brought it from home and got everybody sick. The PPE that they were wearing were, were keeping them and the patients safe. It was when somebody came from home to the shift and spread it throughout sixes. So I mean, I think everybody's experienced that. And Seattle actually did a study. Can you speak to that, Steve, and then kind of wrap it up and we'll go around the horn? As long as I'm talking about the right study, because I have a, maybe a dozen of them in my, in my head. You were, the, one in the, the one in the lawsuit that talked about um, that they could only trace one um, case where a first responder spread it to a patient when there was, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands yeah, unless of thousands. Yeah, unless I'm wrong, I believe it was a patient that spread it to a firefighter, but I could be wrong. But um, that study was done by uh, the King County Medical Director and the City of Seattle Fire Department Medical Director. They did that study before we got fired, and they and they uh, proved that it was uh, they they used all these medical terms, aerosolized this that the other stuff, and so the but the conclusion was that there was only one out of almost a million interactions. There was only one case where it was spread between an EMS worker and a patient. Okay, very well said. Let's let's go around the horn and we'll finish with uh, Steve. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say for politics and tactics tonight is th this is just a tragedy. And to hear all these stories, and again, it's not a partisan issue. Look at Houston. Look at the state of Connecticut. Politicians on both sides of the aisle can make common sense decisions to do testing or other control measures without firing individuals. And now it's the height of absurdity that the mandate's over. They're not mandating new firefighters to get vaccinated, but they won't let firefighters that the taxpayers paid thousands and thousands of dollars to get them trained and certified to not bring them back to work. And, you know, as Davey said, it comes down to leadership and leadership doesn't know rank. You know, there's plenty of senior people that are leading the shifts in when there's that void, but anybody could step up and lead. But it's really tragic when we have those who hold rank that don't have the political courage to lead 
do the hard work and do what's right. Far too many people think that becoming an officer in the fire service means that you're the highest paid firefighter or it's some popularity thing where you lead by consensus. That is not the case. You have to make the hard decisions. The greatest evil is indifference. And if words are important enough to be spoken, then actions needed. Let me start with Ian and we'll go right around the horn. And again, thank you for coming on Politics and Tactics tonight by Fire Engineering. And I will say one last disclaimer. There's been a lot of rocks thrown tonight at the IFF, including by myself. This is the show where anybody comes on, they will be treated with respect, but everybody's welcome on this show. Ed Kelly, I know you're going to watch this. Come on the show. You promised you were going to come on the show. Are you a coward? What's going on? I'll, I'll treat you with the utmost respect if you want to come on the show. What do you call it? We can agree to disagree. That's one of the things that makes America great. Let's have a cogent debate. But up until now, Ed Kelly and anybody from the IFF besides those running for election in the past won't come on the show and they're welcome here. I'll treat them with respect. Ian, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me on. And I guess in closing, I just wanted to highlight another um, just aspect to the, the failures of Local 27 there in Seattle and Kenny Stewart and the rest of the e-board. It wasn't just that they did nothing for us, really, um, but maybe make some asks in a meeting, be told no, and then put their head down. They literally, when they realized the writing was on the, all, the wall and they had written us off, Kenny Stewart actually recommended that the membership do a vote to approve the conditions of the mandate in order to get a $1,700 paycheck, basically the cost of a um, tenured firefighter working a single overtime shift so that they could get a little more money because, well, these guys are gone anyways. We might as well get something out of it. So it wasn't just the fact that they failed to stand up for us. They hid behind the citizens because they said the citizens of Seattle, as a majority, support the mandates. But they actually kind of hedged some circumstances against us. Um, so that's just something I think the country needs to know just how bad it was. It wasn't just that we weren't represented. We actually had some steps that seemed to go against us directly. Chief. Uh, uh, thanks, Frank, again, once again, for having me on this, give me, give me this opportunity. Thanks to all the, the fine men on, on this panel. Um, I'll leave you with this. The fire service, I don't care where you are, New York, Seattle, Australia, Boston, wherever. We pride, on, we pride ourselves on never forgetting, especially the men and women who made the supreme sacrifice, and, and rightfully so, rightfully so. Uh, unfortunately, it seems we've forgotten the men and women who worked through a pandemic at great personal risk to not only themselves, but their family. And that's, that's sad. We've forgotten them, and it's time for them to return to work and, and to be rectified. And again, once again, gentlemen, Thank you for your courage and your uh, your example. And Frank, thank you. Thanks, Chief. You're true leader, Davy. Thanks for the opportunity to to come on and, and meet with you guys and, and share. Um, thanks to the the two vets here for their service to, to our nation. Um, and uh, you know, Frank, you you hit on it earlier. Um, our unions, the the two that that um, represent used to represent me the local 27 in Seattle and the IAFF, um, they had a fiduciary responsibility to defend us or to stand up for, for our rights. Um, throughout this process, um, when I've had conversations with people that happened to be on the blue side of the political spectrum, 
one of the things I find is so interesting is that that's the same group of people that use the state, the statement, my body, my choice, when it comes to um, the t- concept of abortion. And when I politely put that back on somebody, the, the look on their face, if they're thinking about it is, is rather dumbfounded because they don't have, they don't have a reply for it. Um, so when, when somebody who takes union dues from me for 20, almost 22 years, and that's the IFF and Local 27. They took money from me with a promise of standing up for our rights, and then they don't. They're behaving like thieves and liars. Let's be, and, let's be clear. They make a promise to stick up for your rights even when you do the wrong thing. Exactly. They, they make a promise to protect yeah. your process. Exactly. That's important. Exactly. You, you said it better than I did. And, and so – I, I'm inclined to hold great umbrage against those two organizations and the people, the people running them right now. So, again, uh, gentlemen, it's been a it's been a pleasure to to listen to you and hear what you had to say. Um, hopefully, our paths cross again. Um, and thank you very much, Frank, for what you're doing and and keeping this keeping this alive. People need to know. Thanks, Davey. Thanks for all you do, Paul. Um, I, I would like to close with uh, where, where we stand right now in New York. Uh, currently, we still have two pretty big lawsuits that we've put forth. Uh, the first one was from day one that a, a group of us put forth to, that challenged the, um, the way in which we were put on leave without pay and, and that due process. And the second one was defending uh, religious freedom. And that lawsuit is called... Uh, New Yorkers for Religious Liberty. Uh, That case has gone on on to be as big to um, be assisted with a uh, a law firm called ADF, American Defending Freedom. And to, uh, you know, for me, two years ago, that would mean nothing. But to understand who these individuals are that are helping to defend us now is huge. They're a huge law firm that only take on cases such as this and uh, to have them in our corner is a huge, huge uh, victory in itself. Um, so that case actually might be able to go the distance all the way to the federal Supreme Court. That's that's kind of what we're what we're looking at. So it's going to take time. The wheels of justice turn very, very slow. And we're talking about civil servants. We don't we're not millionaires. We don't have the, the resources to fund all these things. Uh, most of us have put up thousands and thousands of our own money. Uh, to fund these these lawsuits and had and have individual lawsuits in ourselves. Um, so for the viewership at home that's watching this, um, I, I'm sure most of you can, you know, have some empathy for these situations that these firefighters are going through. And if you feel like you can't do anything because you're far away, uh, that's a false statement. The first thing that you could do that requires no financial um contribution and just have the conversation. It's important that people know that firefighters are still trying to get back to work, even after mandates have been uh, uh, let go, that there's been an arbitrary way to to allow members to come back. Some are allowed back free and clear, and some are forced to sign a waiver to to sign away their right to sue, um, which is a bizarre, you know, process in itself. Um, and, and 
Bravest for Choice isn't an organization that was started uh, just because of these vaccine mandates. What we want to do is to make sure, like the chief said, we never forget. Um, and, and it's not to say we never forget we're going to hold a grudge. And I, I guarantee most of those individuals, the overwhelming majority, want to come back and serve the public and do their job because that we love what we do. Um, we're not coming back and saying we'll never forget to hold a grudge. We're coming back to say we'll never forget to make sure that this injustice never happens again. And, you know, just like um, before my time, those individuals stood up after 9-11 saying the era was toxic and members are getting sick. That's what we're going to continue to do. Things. Oh, wait a in- second. The EPA said the air was fine to breathe at 9-11. How did that you know, work? It- we, 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 we sometimes uh, we do forget, you know, and the public forgets to stay on course um, because it doesn't affect them sometimes. But uh, people are getting sick. Um, and, and like the members in this panel said, we need to ask those questions. We need to ask those hard questions. And Frank, I think you hit it uh, the nail on the head when you were talking about the unions. I, I was always a union guy. Um, it was disheartened to to feel left out when I'm part of a union and I didn't have them, their full support behind me. They basically said, get the shot, vest out or or get fired. Um, that's not true leadership, in my opinion. I'm thankful that they didn't fold like the other unions, that they were able to put up a fight. They still have their own lawsuit um, challenging collective bargaining. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we left we left people behind, which is not what Marines do. It's not what we do in the fire service. Um, and the two other things mentioned was throughout this process, like we've talked about, we've, we've collaborated with not only first responders in this country, but around the world. Um, mostly on the East coast, we set up, uh, in, in help with, um, uh, members from Florida, members from DC, and um, the America Project, which is run by General Michael Flynn, uh, to set up an organization called the National Coalition of Frontline Workers. And the reason we set this up was to give the members a true voice to actually vote on endorsements for political um, uh, representatives, to give them a voice um, when their when they're, uh, local unions aren't are doing that for them. So if anybody's interested, check out um, the National Coalition of Frontline Workers. And then for anybody um, on the panel or that's listening in, uh, we we also have a international call with first responders from all over the country. This, you know, at, at any given time, there's about 26 different countries. Australia is heavily included in that because they were affected so much. Um, and we have these conversations. And it usually boils down to a sense of camaraderie, feeling that you're not alone in having these discussions and these feelings uh, because it could be ostracizing, you know, to, to feel like, uh, you know, you're tiptoeing around these sensitive topics. That's not what we need to do. Frank, you mentioned it. If you can't have the conversation, then what type of freedom are we having right now? Um, I don't want false freedom, you know, and, and my freedom isn't given by any political uh, representative. My freedom is given by God. It's, it's, it was given to all of us at the conception of birth. Um, so we need to remember that fact and, and remember that we have an incredible power if we stand together, even if it's indifferent. 
Uh, we had vaccinated individuals that were standing side by side with us that believed in the shot, that believed that people should get the shot, but believed there should have been a personal choice. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure I left a whole lot out. Uh, I'll, I'll also shout out, um, you know, the, the continued effort to seek justice for those that were vaccine injured. We have people all over the spectrum that have come to help us out in that in that realm of uh, having conversations with uh, tech billionaires such as Steve Kirsch and uh, even uh, meeting with Robert Kennedy to have those conversations. And, um, you know, so I think it's really important. I don't think it should be a politicized conversation, but I do believe that we need to work from the bottom up and the top down to create a better future. And most of us are in this fight, not for ourselves. Uh, those uh, military people or first responders, we, we do things despite of ourselves, despite of our safety. We're in this for the next generation. I'm in it for my two sons. This is my fight that I'm not willing to pass down to them. And we have an incredible team of people across the country that feels so deeply about this topic of not only medical freedom, but just preserving freedom uh, and, and seeking justice for righting the wrongs that were done. You know, it's, it's a very, very um, daunting task, but that's what the country was founded on. You know, we, we got to kind of go back to those beliefs of standing for something bigger than ourselves and sometimes sacrificing and suffering because that's the only way we grow. I know firsthand for anybody out there, I, I, I know I'm rambling, but I'll end with this. Before the pandemic, I believed in uh, serving the public, which was my, my contribution to society and serving something greater than myself. Since the pandemic, every single time I stepped into the darkness of the unknown, I didn't know when my next come in when I thought I was going to lose everything, something miraculous happened. And that's when I found my faith, which was um, I was being guided the whole time. Every time I listened to that inner voice inside of me that said, do the right thing, stand up when standing's hard. I was, I was repaid tenfold. Uh, and, and just by meeting you gentlemen here is a, is a testament to that. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful to have gone through this process, to have these conversations with leadership far beyond what I'm at um, and to have people to look up to, um, you know, because now I'm back and and I'm going to make the best of what I have and I'm going to do my uh, duties and obligations to the utmost respect and I'm going to bring everybody along for the ride. And I'm, I'm going to continue to have those tough, tough conversations, continue to support those that were injured to, from these vaccines, continue to fight for those that are still out. We still have members on leave without pay. We still have members terminated and we still have members that were retired that are trying to come back. And, and you know, if anybody wants to do more, even if you just pick up the phone call, the phone to call FDNY headquarters to say, hey, what's up with these firefighters not coming back? They're all ready, willing and able the mandates are over. Commissioner, it's the stroke of a pen. Bring them back. Um, so thank you all for being part of the conversation. Thank you all for your individual fight. Thank you all for your leadership. Um, and, and just know that you're not alone. 
Um, we're experiencing the same thing across the entire country and across the entire world with these international calls. So, uh, uh, Frank, thank you very much for having us on and making this part of your show for, for people to, uh, to view and see the realness of what's happening even after the pandemic's over. The honors, Dave, Sam, and mine to bring a voice to something that really should have never occurred. Uh, Sam, last words for the night. Thank, thank, thank you all for your courage and 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 for bringing this. I mean, like I said, these stories are uh, every 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 firefighter needs to hear them, and, and every every citizen needs to hear these stories because I, I uh, yeah, we say never forget, and and look where we are right now and what we're talking about, and and people not only forgot, they never heard, and it's um it's a testament to you all standing up the way you did and and the way you continue to do. So um, thank you. Steve, it's only fitting that I end with you for the last word. You've been the ringleader from everybody in Seattle. So uh, kind of take us off here. That's an honorable position to be because the, the people that I'm associated with on this lawsuit and in this group are honorable men. And I appreciate that unbelievably. I want to, I want to, uh, I think it's very telling that Ian and uh, Davey both they, uh, their, their focus was against our union, Local 27, Ed Kelly and uh, Kenny Stewart. Okay, if you do have K- Ed Kelly on, I, I implore you to ask Kenny Stewart on, and I will fly to any place in the, in the United States and maybe out of the state in order to participate in that because these people need to be held accountable. Because the, I, think it's, I think it's easy to forget once we're one and two years um, – removed from the actual event this is ongoing we had one of our members on our lawsuit who was living in their car with their five-year-old daughter they did not have an income and they were living in their car and meanwhile our union local 27 and kenny stewart come out and talk about brotherhood and fraternity and, and things of that nature, they have their beer hall that they go have their drinks and their meetings that they won't allow us to be part of. The um, Now that we have been excommunicated, there are lots of members who retired who could stay part of the union. That's not a bit. That's not that is not something that I, as a retired member of the Seattle Fire Department, had the opportunity because I was I didn't get the shot. And so. So these guys, this is an ongoing issue. It's happening today. It happened yesterday, and it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be there tomorrow. Meanwhile, these poor people are forgotten. Now, I will tell you this. We use the term men because it's a colloquialism. It's something that we're used to using. But there are many females and many women as part of the fire service and on our suit who are also part of this. The person who lived in their car was a was a mother of a five-year-old. She was fired and living in a, in a car, had to go to her family in Missouri. So so don't forget those people. This is, uh, this is something that, that – it's just, it's a travesty that is ongoing. So if you, if, uh, if I sure, I sure hope to have the opportunity to look some of these people in the face again. Thanks, Steve. And if you could provide me um, with the link to the complaint one more time, I'll make sure that uh, Mark and Fire Engineering post it with this show so people could actually read the complaint because I think that'd be helpful for Paul and his attorney as well. And I also state to, Paul and Steve, 
that this platform is open to your attorneys as this case comes on. If both of the attorneys want to come on and talk to me, I would love uh, to talk to both of them as this uh, progresses. Uh, hey, again, Frank, yeah. can, I, can I, can I, something that we're talking about the attorney thing, I don't want to, I don't want to end the closure, but uh, our attorney went to a conference in Atlanta a couple of months ago. And one of the things that they came back and shared was that around the nation, and it was, it was about this topic of uh, trying to help network uh, different law firms trying to fight these, these uh, mandate lawsuits and things like that, uh, or mandates. One of the things that, that came out of that is that almost exclusively the law firms that are making this fight are like firms that have 10 and fewer employees. Mm-hmm. It's it's overwhelmingly really tiny law firms. Now, just, just so just so that you're aware, and I prevailed in a United States Supreme Court case. That's yes. not uncommon. Generally, okay. what you'll see is all of these big public interest firms that will take on the case without, you know, requiring funds to come in that actually fight for the little guy. They generally don't get involved until after the Court of Appeals. So when the Second Circuit in Manhattan denies the case and throws it out and somebody files for certiorari, all of a sudden you'll see all of these firms come out of the out of out of the ground. You'd be like, where were you when this started? It's always about the little guy putting skin in the game. It's the little guy fighting it all the way to the Court of Appeals. And then generally after you reach that level, that's where the public interest law firms will come in. That's not uncommon. Um, that's it for politics and tactics tonight. Mark, if you could take us off the air and we will post the links that we talked about on the show. Again, anybody from the IFF is welcome to come on the show and uh, let's hear your side of it. That's it. Mark, take us off. 